Section One of Gallagher and Other Stories by Richard Harding Davis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Gallagher, a newspaper story, part one. We had had so many office boys before Gallagher came among us that they had begun to lose the characteristics of individuals and became merged in a composite photograph of small boys to whom we applied the generic title of Here You or You Boy. We had had sleepy boys and lazy boys and bright, smart boys who became so familiar on so short an acquaintance that we were forced to part with them to save our own self-respect. They generally graduated into district messenger boys and occasionally returned to us in blue coats with nickel-plated buttons and patronized us. But Gallagher was something different from anything we had experienced before gallagher was short and broad in build with a solid muscular broadness and not a fat and dumpy shortness he wore perpetually on his face a happy and knowing smile as if you and the world in general were not impressing him as seriously as you thought you were and his eyes which were very black and very bright snapped intelligently at you like those of a little black and tan terrier all Gallagher knew had been learnt on the streets, not a very good school in itself, but one that turns out very knowing scholars. And Gallagher had attended both morning and evening sessions. He could not tell you who the Pilgrim Fathers were, nor could he name the thirteen original states, but he knew all the officers of the 22nd Police District by name, and he could distinguish the clang of a fire-engine's gong from that of a patrol wagon or an ambulance fully two blocks distant. It was Gallagher who rang the alarm when the Woolwich Mills caught fire, while the officer on the beat was asleep, and it was Gallagher who led the black diamonds against the wharf rats when they used to stone each other to their heart's content on the coal wharves of Richmond. I am afraid, now that I see these facts written down, that Gallagher was not a reputable character, but he was so very young and so very old for his years that we all liked him very much nevertheless. He lived in the extreme northern part of Philadelphia, where the cotton and woolen mills run down to the river, and how he ever got home after leaving the press building at two in the morning was one of the mysteries of the office. Sometimes he caught a night car, and sometimes he walked all the way, arriving at the little house where his mother and himself lived alone at four in the morning. Occasionally he was given a ride on an early milk cart or on one of the newspaper delivery wagons, with its high piles of papers still damp and sticky from the press. He knew several drivers of night hawks, those cabs that prowl the streets at night looking for belated passengers, and when it was a very cold morning he would not go home at all, but would crawl into one of these cabs and sleep, curled up on the cushions, until daylight. Besides being quick and cheerful, Gallagher possessed a power of amusing the press's young men to a degree seldom attained by the ordinary mortal. 
his clog dancing on the city editor's desk when that gentleman was upstairs fighting for two more columns of space was always a source of innocent joy to us and his imitations of the comedians of the variety halls delighted even the dramatic critic from whom the comedians themselves failed to force a smile but gallagher's chief characteristic was his love for that element of news generically classed as crime not that he ever did anything criminal himself on the contrary his was rather the work of the criminal specialist and his morbid interest in the doings of all queer characters his knowledge of their methods their present whereabouts and their past deeds of transgression often rendered him a valuable ally to our police reporter whose daily feuilletons were the only portion of the paper gallagher deigned to read in gallagher the detective element was abnormally developed he had shown this on several occasions and to excellent purpose once the paper had sent him into a home for destitute orphans which was believed to be grievously mismanaged and gallagher while playing the part of a destitute orphan kept his eyes open to what was going on around him so faithfully that the story he told of the treatment meted out to the real orphans was sufficient to rescue the unhappy little wretches from the individual who had them in charge and to have the individual himself sent to jail gallagher's knowledge of the aliases terms of imprisonment and various misdoings of the leading criminals in philadelphia was almost as thorough as that of the chief of police himself and he could tell to an hour when dutchy mac was to be let out of prison and could identify at a glance dick oxford confidence man as gentleman dan petty thief there were at this time only two pieces of news in any of the papers the least important of the two was the big fight between the champion of the united states and the would-be champion arranged to take place near philadelphia the second was the burbank murder which was filling space in newspapers all over the world from new york to bombay richard f burbank was one of the most prominent of new york's railroad lawyers he was also as a matter of course an owner of much railroad stock and a very wealthy man he had been spoken of as a political possibility for many high offices and as the counsel for a great railroad was known even further than the great railroad itself had stretched its system at six o'clock one morning he was found by his butler lying at the foot of the hall stairs with two pistol wounds above his heart he was quite dead his safe to which only he and his secretary had the keys was found open and two hundred thousand dollars in bonds stocks and money which had been placed there only the night before was found missing the secretary was missing also his name was stephen s hayde and his name and his description had been telegraphed and cabled to all parts of the world there was enough circumstantial evidence to show beyond any question or possibility of mistake that he was the murderer it made an enormous amount of talk and unhappy individuals were being arrested all over the country and sent on to new york for identification three had been arrested at liverpool and one man just as he landed at sydney australia 
but so far the murderer had escaped. We were all talking about it one night, as everybody else was all over the country, in the local room, and the city editor said it was worth a fortune to anyone who chanced to run across Hade and succeeded in handing him over to the police. Some of us thought Hade had taken passage from some one of the smaller seaports, and others were of the opinion that he had buried himself in some cheap lodging-house in New York, or in one of the smaller towns in New Jersey. "'I shouldn't be surprised to meet him out walking, right here in Philadelphia,' said one of the staff. "'He'll be disguised, of course, but you could always tell him by the absence of the trigger-finger on his right hand. It's missing, you know.' shot off when he was a boy you want to look for a man dressed like a tough said the city editor for as this fellow is to all appearances a gentleman he will try to look as little like a gentleman as possible no he won't said gallagher with that calm impertinence that made him dear to us he'll dress just like a gentleman toughs don't wear gloves and you see he's got to wear em the first thing he thought of after doing for Burbank was of that gone finger and how he was to hide it. He stuffed the finger of that glove with cotton so as to make it look like a whole finger, and the first time he takes off that glove, they've got him. See? And he knows it. So what you's want to do is to look for a man with gloves on. I've been a-doing it for two weeks now, and I can tell you it's hard work, for everybody wears gloves this kind of weather." but if you look long enough you'll find him, and when you think it's him, go up to him and hold out your hand in a friendly way, like a bunco steerer, and shake his hand, and if you feel that his forefinger ain't real flesh, but just wadded cotton, then grip to it with your right and grab his throat with your left, and holler for help. There was an appreciative pause. "'I see, gentlemen,' said the city editor dryly, "'that Gallagher's reasoning has impressed you, "'and I also see that before the week is out "'all of my young men will be under bonds "'for assaulting innocent pedestrians "'whose only offence is that they wear gloves in midwinter.' "'It was about a week after this "'that Detective Heffelfinger of Inspector Burns' staff came over to Philadelphia after a burglar, of whose whereabouts he had been misinformed by telegraph. He brought the warrant, requisition, and other necessary papers with him, but the burglar had flown. One of our reporters had worked on a New York paper, and knew Heffelfinger, and the detective came to the office to see if he could help him in his so far unsuccessful search. He gave Gallagher his card, and after Gallagher had read it and had discovered who the visitor was, he became so demoralized that he was absolutely useless. One of Byrne's men was a much more awe-inspiring individual to Gallagher than a member of the cabinet. He accordingly seized his hat and overcoat, and leaving his duties to be looked after by others, hastened out after the object of his admiration, who found his suggestions and knowledge of the city so valuable, and his company so entertaining, that they became very intimate, and spent the rest of the day together. In the meanwhile, the managing editor had instructed his subordinates to inform Gallagher, when he condescended to return, that his services were no longer needed. Gallagher had played truant once too often. 
Unconscious of this, he remained with his new friend until late the same evening, and started the next afternoon toward the press office. As I have said, Gallagher lived in the most distant part of the city, not many minutes' walk from the Kensington Railroad Station, where trains ran into the suburbs and on to New York. It was in front of this station that a smoothly shaven, well-dressed man brushed past Gallagher and hurried up the steps to the ticket office. He held a walking-stick in his right hand, and Gallagher, who now patiently scrutinized the hands of everyone who wore gloves, saw that while three fingers of the man's hand were closed around the cane, the fourth stood out in almost a straight line with his palm. Gallagher stopped with a gasp, and with a trembling all over his little body, and his brain asked with a throb if it could be possible. But possibilities and probabilities were to be discovered later. Now was the time for action. He was after the man in a moment, hanging at his heels and his eyes moist with excitement. He heard the man ask for a ticket to Tarsdale, a little station just outside of Philadelphia, and when he was out of hearing but not out of sight, purchased one for the same place. The stranger went into the smoking-car and seated himself at one end toward the door. Gallagher took his place at the opposite end. He was trembling all over and suffered from a slight feeling of nausea. He guessed it came from fright, not of any bodily harm that might come to him, but at the probability of failure in his adventure and of its most momentous possibilities. The stranger pulled his coat-collar up around his ears, hiding the lower portion of his face, but not concealing the resemblance in his troubled eyes and close-shut lips to the likenesses of the murderer Haid. They reached Torsdale in half an hour, and the stranger, alighting quickly, struck off at a rapid pace down the country road leading to the station. Gallagher gave him a hundred yards start, and then followed slowly after— the road ran between fields and passed a few frame-houses set far from the road in kitchen gardens. Once or twice the man looked back over his shoulder, but he saw only a dreary length of road, with a small boy splashing through the slush in the midst of it, and stopping every now and again to throw snowballs at belated sparrows. After a ten minutes' walk, the stranger turned into a side road which led to only one place, the Eagle Inn an old roadside hostelry known now as the headquarters for pot-hunters from the Philadelphia game market, and the battleground of many a cockfight. Gallagher knew the place well. He and his young companions had often stopped there, when out chestnutting on holidays in the autumn. The son of the man who kept it had often accompanied them on their excursions, and though the boys of the city streets considered him a dumb lout, they respected him somewhat owing to his inside knowledge of dog and cockfights the stranger entered the inn at a side door and gallagher reaching it a few minutes later let him go for the time being and set about finding his occasional playmate young kepler kepler's offspring was found in the woodshed tain't hard to guess what brings you out here said the tavern-keeper's son with a grin it's the fight what fight asked Gallagher unguardedly. "'What fight? Why the fight?' returned his companion, with a slow contempt of superior knowledge. "'It's to come off here to-night. 
You know that as well as me. Anyway, your sportin' editor knows it. He got the tip last night. But that won't help you any. You needn't think there's any chance of your getting a peep at it. Why, tickets is two hundred and fifty apiece. <whistles> Whistled Gallagher. Where's it to be? In the barn, whispered Kepler. I helped him fix the ropes this morning, I did. Gosh, but you're in luck, exclaimed Gallagher with flattering envy. Couldn't I just get a peep at it? Maybe, said the gratified Kepler. There's a winder with a wooden shutter at the back of the barn. You can get in by it, if you have someone to boost you up to the sill. Say, drawled Gallagher, as if something had but just that moment reminded him, who's that gent who come down the road just a bit ahead of me, him with the cape coat? Has he got anything to do with the fight? Him, repeated Kepler in tones of sincere disgust. No, oh, he ain't no sport. He's queer, Dad thinks. He come here one day last week about ten in the morning, said his doctor told him to go out in the country for his health. He's stuck up and citified and wears gloves and takes his meals private in his room and all that sort of ruck. They were saying in the saloon last night that they thought that he was hiding from something, and Dad, just to try him, asks him last night if he was coming to see the fight. He looked kind of scared and said he didn't want to see no fight. And then Dad says, I guess you mean you don't want no fighters to see you. Dad didn't mean no harm by it, just passed it as a joke. But Mr. Carlton, as he calls himself, got white as a ghost and says, I'll go to the fight willing enough, and begins to laugh and joke. And this morning he went right into the bar room where all the sports were settin', and said he was going into town to see some friends. And as he starts off, he laughs and says, This don't look as if I was afraid of seeing people, does it? But Dad says it was just bluff that made him do it, and Dad thinks that if he hadn't said what he did, this Mr. Carlton wouldn't have left his room at all. Gallagher had got all he wanted, and much more than he had hoped for, so much more that his walk back to the station was in the nature of a triumphal march. He had twenty minutes to wait for the next train, and it seemed an hour. While waiting, he sent a telegram to Heffelfinger at his hotel. It read, "'Your man is near the Torresdale Station, on Pennsylvania Railroad. Take cab and meet me at station. Wait until I come.' Gallagher. With the exception of one at midnight, no other train stopped at Torresdale that evening, hence the direction to take a cab. The train to the city seemed to Gallagher to drag itself by inches. It stopped and backed at purposeless intervals, waited for an express to precede it, and dallied at stations, and when at last it reached the terminus, Gallagher was out before it had stopped, and was in the cab and off on his way to the home of the sporting editor. The sporting editor was at dinner, and came out in the hall to see him, with his napkin in his hand. Gallagher explained breathlessly that he had located the murderer for whom the police of two continents were looking, and that he believed, in order to quiet the suspicions of the people with whom he was hiding, that he would be present at the fight that night. The sporting editor led Gallagher into his library and shut the door. Now, he said, go over all that again. 
Gallagher went over it again in detail, and added how he had sent for Heffelfinger to make the arrest in order that it might be kept from the knowledge of the local police and from the Philadelphia reporters. "'What I want Heffelfinger to do is to arrest Hayde with the warrant he has for the burglar,' explained Gallagher, "'and to take him on to New York on the owl train that passes Torresdale at one. "'It don't get to Jersey City until four o'clock, one hour after the morning papers go to press. "'Of course we must fix Heffelfinger so's he'll keep quiet and not tell who his prisoner really is.' The sporting editor reached his hand out to pat Gallagher on the head, but changed his mind and shook hands with him instead. "'My boy,' he said, "'you are an infant phenomenon. If I can pull the rest of this thing off to-night, it will mean the $5,000 reward and fame galore for you and the paper. Now I'm going to write a note to the managing editor, and you could take it around to him, and tell him what you've done and what I am going to do.' and he'll take you back on the paper and raise your salary. Perhaps you didn't know you've been discharged? Do you think you ain't a-goin' to take me with you? demanded Gallagher. Why, certainly not. Why should I? It all lies with the detective and myself now. You've done your share and done it well. If the man's caught, the reward's yours. But you'd only be in the way now. You'd better go to the office and make your peace with the chief. "'If the paper can get along without me, I can get along without the old paper,' said Gallagher hotly. "'And if I ain't a-goin' with you, you ain't neither, for I know where Heffelfinger is to be, and you don't, and I won't tell you.' "'Oh, very well, very well,' replied the sporting editor, weakly capitulating. "'I'll send the note by a messenger. Only mind, if you lose your place, don't blame me.' Gallagher wondered how this man could value a week's salary against the excitement of seeing a noted criminal run down, and of getting the news to the paper, and to that one paper alone. From that moment the sporting editor sank in Gallagher's estimation. Mr. Dwyer sat down at his desk and scribbled off the following note. I have received reliable information that Hade, the Burbank murderer, will be present at the fight to-night. We have arranged it so that he will be arrested quietly, and in such a manner that the fact may be kept from all other papers. I need not point out to you that this will be the most important piece of news in the country to-morrow. Yours, etc., Michael E. Dwyer. The sporting editor stepped into the waiting cab, while Gallagher whispered the directions to the driver. He was told to go first to a district messenger's office, and from there up to the Ridge Avenue Road, out Broad Street, and on to the Old Eagle Inn near Torresdale. It was a miserable night. The rain and snow were falling together, and freezing as they fell. The sporting editor got out to send his message to the press office, and then, lighting a cigar and turning up the collar of his greatcoat, curled up in the corner of the cab. "'Wake me when we get there, Gallagher,' he said. He knew he had a long ride and much rapid work before him, and he was preparing for the strain. To Gallagher the idea of going to sleep seemed almost criminal. From the dark corner of the cab his eyes shone with excitement and with the awful joy of anticipation. He glanced every now and then to where the sporting editor's cigar shone in the darkness, and watched it as it gradually burnt more dimly and went out. 
the lights in the shop windows threw a broad glare across the ice on the pavements and the lights from the lamp-posts tossed the distorted shadow of the cab and the horse and the motionless driver sometimes before and sometimes behind them after half an hour gallagher slipped down to the bottom of the cab and dragged out a lap-robe in which he wrapped himself it was growing colder, and the damp, keen wind swept in through the cracks until the window frames and woodwork were cold to the touch. End of section one.